Hello and welcome to Switzer Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. And tonight we have a really, really interesting show. First up, we have the MD of Webjet, John Gusick. After you listen to this interview, I think you'd be fairly positive on the company, but it's up to you to make that decision. But I found it a very, very interesting uh, interview about where this company is going. And then we talked to Dan Annan of Cosmos Asset Management. Now they've created a ETF based on Bitcoin and the miners of Bitcoin. Uh, it's been going for about a month uh, on the Aussie stock market and its ticket code is Digger, D-I-G-A. Dan explains what this ETF is all about. It's not a pure play with Bitcoin. It's a actually dealing with the, the, the companies that actually mine Bitcoin. Very, very interesting uh, subject as well. And I'm saying very, very interesting all the time, but this is very, very interesting. And then we talked to Ron Shamger of Taman Asset Management. EML is a company that I've liked. This was clobbered by the Irish Central Bank. Uh, the share price really went for a dive in May. Well, the Irish Central Bank has started to be nice to EML and its share price really rocketed up today. Uh, Ron Shamger uh, actually holds EML in his family and he's going to talk to us about what the prospects are for the company. And then Charles Tarby, the founder of uh, Century 21, looks at the stock at the real estate market right now, looks at what's going on and he's seeing lots of supply coming on the market. So anyone in the market to sell a property or buy a property will want to hear what Charles has to say. So that's the show. Let's kick off now with John Cusick, MD of Webjet. We're joined by the Managing Director of Webjet, John Gusey. Great to see you, John. Great to see you, Peter. Now, last time I interviewed you, it was right in the depth of the coronavirus crash. It probably was April, I think, 2020. You were holed up in Tunisia at the time, um, and you had a fantastic picture of a yacht in the background, if I remember <laughs> And, and, and of course, it was a troubled time, but a tough time for a business like yours because we didn't know what was going to happen to uh, travel type businesses. Um, you kind of allayed lots of our fears. And I think people who watched that probably took a pun on Webjet and you've done well um, since that time. I think you were about $2.50, $2.60. Maybe you remember how low you went, but you're around $5.70 now. You were $6.37 until recent times and the Austrian yep. thing. So let's give us an idea of where you think the company is now, given the headwinds that you've got through and some of the new ones that are bobbing up right now. All right. So I will spend 20 seconds or so just uh, to, 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 to go back to those dim, dark days of April 2020, where, um, you know, it was a near-death experience for, for, for the business. So we had to recapitalise and we got... Uh, a substantial injection of a lot more shares into, into the company, which gave us the breathing room to, to operate. And thankfully, that in conjunction with a convertible note that we've subsequently raised, puts us in an incredibly privileged position to have circa 450 million on the balance sheet and an ability to do things that many other travel businesses can't. So you, you've spoken about the incredible volatility that's occurred since then. You, you, your memory is exceptional, Peter. Um, we are trading. We were trading 250 day one after that recapitalization. 
And um, it's been a, a, a volatile journey, but if you were with us from that day, you know, you, you've seen a, a more than doubling of your money. And we're obviously thankful for the incredible retail support that we've had over the last 12 or 18 months, which I've spoken to you previously about. It's dramatically different, the component of our share register compared to what it was pre-COVID with a lot more individuals uh, investing into Webjet. Now, where we are today is in a great position for the recovery because what's happened is as follows, and this is a high-level summation of, uh, of, you know, forget about what happens in Austria today, forget about what's going to happen in Germany tomorrow. If you roll forward six to 12 months, this is what the world looks like for us. The competitive dynamic has changed. A lot of our traditional competitors have been substantially weakened, notwithstanding all the difficulty I described about our capital raising back in April of 2020. We're in a unique position where we're financially stronger, less competitors. So therefore, we're going to pick up substantially more share on a global basis. That applies to our Webjet online travel agency business that many of your viewers and listeners will uh, will understand. But our, our global intermediary Webbeds business, we're a substantial beneficiary of a change in competitive landscape, which will enable us to pick up more share. We think that in the second half of our financial year, of next year, which is calendar year, financial year 23, but basically October 2022 through to March 2023, we'll be back to pre-COVID levels. So, and we will grow off those levels. So notwithstanding it's difficult, Notwithstanding, it was challenging. We're doing all of this on a lower cost base, circa 20%, and we believe we'll be higher than we were pre-COVID. For all of that, we're incredibly buoyed with what the, the next 12 months holds. The challenges of the coronavirus, did it make you look at your business from a different point of view? And I think you, you actually made reference to the fact last time I talked to you that you really started looking at costs like never before. It, it, has that still been the case? Absolutely. So, you know, part of our success uh, pre-COVID was through a series of acquisitions and what we were doing was pedaling incredibly fast. So, you know, our run rate of TT or sales and revenue was growing circa 20, 30%. So you're on the treadmill of growing 20, 30%. The market expects you to keep growing 20, 30% organically. Your focus isn't on cost because you're getting rewarded by what you're doing at the top line and a little bit on the bottom line, but uh, the top line growth was the most important driver. Uh, I remember back in April of 2020, the day after, you know, we were hung over the day after we did the capital raising, but the day after the day after, we uh, got the guys together and said, you know, we can't do this again. To de-risk the business going forward, we need to be substantially more efficient. To do that, we looked at every element of the process within our organization, and that has reduced uh, our cost base per unit. And at scale, we'll be something like 20% down. Now, we're already 31% down as of today, but we'll be 20% down at scale because we're going to get a recovery and we're probably cut a little bit uh, too much in some areas. But we're in a really strong position to be operating at lower unit economics than we were pre-COVID. A lot of people, you know, look at your business and think, well, hang on, the world's still not flying like they used to. And before the coronavirus, your share price was around probably $10. Uh, not long before that, you were around $12. Um, but I think you should explain to people 
what is the biggest chunk of your business or what's the fastest growing part of your business nowadays so they fully understand the, the diversification that's happened over time? Sure. So uh, as you rightly identified, most of our people know us by the online travel agency brand and the the the, the Webjet red yeah, the, air, the aircraft with the tail on, on it that looks like a mouse. So everyone understands who we are from our history, from our history over the last 20 odd years. But in 2013, we built a new division headquartered out of Dubai and put it into contrast pre-COVID, it was doing circa two and a half billion in sales. And our Australian online travel agency business was doing a touch over 1 billion. So it's more than double the size and it was much faster growing than our uh, Australian business. Now, what that does is we provide hotel rooms for anyone who sells a hotel. So you can go to an, a, a competitor online travel agency, get a hotel. It might be being supplied to them by Webbeds, which is the division we're talking about. You can go to a retail travel agency, you can go to a corporate travel agency, you can go to a tour operator etc. So anyone that sells a hotel room needs to get supply and they don't have a one-to-one -one relationship with every hotel company. They have an aggregator like us that puts all of that through a pipe and downloads it into their technologies. That's what we do. That's the value proposition we have. And that business is growing. So that's a global business. In the past, it was sort of skewed 50% Europe, 20% Middle East, sort of 30% Asia and a, you know, a tiny little bit in the, in the Americas. What we're now seeing is we've invested in, uh, in, in the US and we've now got uh, roughly a quarter of our business coming from the US and Europe has recovered first and Middle East is now in the last couple of months starting to see some recovery and Asia Pacific is still uh, pretty dormant. So great opportunity. Now, where we're traveling as of December, our expectation is we'll be greater than 70% of pre-COVID levels in December. But I reckon the market's only recovered at a global basis in travel circa 40, 45%. So we're 50% above the market recovery. And we think we can continue that momentum over the journey. When you first started talking about your, your bed business, if I put it that way, it yep. seemed to me that you were talking business beds in particular, but listening to you there, it sounds like you diversified even into, you know, if you're providing beds for travel agents, you, you know, I guess you're doing retail as well. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, we've still got uh, a largest component is circa 80% of leisure travellers and roughly 20% of corporate travellers. But yeah, you're right. It's a, it's, a, it's a bed business through multiple distribution points from retail to, to the rest that I described. Yeah. So I, I guess a big uplift for the business will be when business starts travelling again big time. Absolutely. And they pay more, don't they? They, they effectively buy more per per head and they pay more as well. Absolutely. So um, the, the historically, uh, our largest market is the Middle East for corporate travel. Um, so that's been pretty moribund for a long time. The opportunity in North America, uh, I spoke about the investment we made in the States, that was non-existent for us pre-COVID. That's going to be a big opportunity. So you're right, as corporates come online, and Asia Pacific has always been a, a strong corporate market as well. As corporates come online, we expect a big uptick in average booking values and in number of bookings. Now, I would have figured for a business like you, and all businesses are, in, are into risk management, but ultimately you having a, a very good handle on what's going to happen to um, um, in, infections in Europe in particular, 
and vaccinations. What's your, what's your best guess? I know it's a guess, but you guys should be looking at this more intensively than the, the normal people. What do you think is going to happen in Austria, Germany, and Europe generally? Because that's going to have an impact on your business, isn't it? It, uh, it hasn't as of today. So I can tell you as of yesterday's bookings, um, our growth rate continues to accelerate. So it hasn't impacted it yet. Clearly, in those markets, it will impact it over the next few months. But what we're seeing is it's more than being compensated for transatlantic travel, which has just opened up on the, uh, the 8th of November from memory. So as a consequence, you're seeing that is greater than the impact of declining Austrian sales. What, let's assume this rolls out into four or five of the neighboring countries to Austria um, over the next two to three months. What I think will happen is you'll see that being compensated by the rest of Asia opening up and giving us an opportunity. So it's not gonna have the impact that it did have because that it would have had 12 months ago when the world was in synchronously going into uh, lockdown. We're no longer in that. Yeah, we've got markets like Australia is the best example. We're opening up, some markets are shutting down. Asia Pacific is opening up, a smaller number of markets are shutting down. So at the moment, it doesn't have a, a near-term impact on our earnings. Mm. When you heard about the, the Pfizer pill that uh, apparently will be much, uh, great for reducing deaths and hospitalizations, did you see that as being a, a potential plus for the business? Oh, absolutely. The, 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 the treatments, and, and I call it out in the presentation that I just the, that's just been loaded on the ASX, the, the, the treatments suggest that over the next six to 12 months, uh, we're, you know, we'll be clearly towards the end of the pandemic and its effect on the travel industry. Clearly this will exist for many, many years as, as, as a virus, but the impact it'll have on the health system will be significantly reduced and the consequence for people's confidence in wanting to travel will be significantly increased. So the, the markets where there are cautious consumers will become less cautious because the downside risk is no different to what it was pre-COVID. It's amazing and as, um, as I'm listening to your answers and I, I know I've been probably interviewing you for seven or eight years, we never once ever talked about the medical implications for your business, did we? It's, just, it's amazing how the world's changed. Yeah, no idea. Yeah, a, a few cute people ask me, scenario planning, how come you never had a scenario planning of when you were going to go to negative revenue? It was such a fanciful concept that it never crossed my mind that we would go not only to zero, but you'd have to give money back to consumers. That mm. never ever was part of our planning. So you're right, let alone that, let alone talking about uh, all of a sudden everyone's a, a medical expert. Mm. I know you're a very respectful man, John, and you wouldn't have used an expletive, but you must have felt like using an expletive when you got a question like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know me too well, Peter. The expletives would have come in the first, uh, if there were four words at the start of the sentences, five of them would have been inappropriate. Okay, mate. Thanks for joining us. Good luck with it. Look forward to um, the performance of the company going forward. Thanks, Peter, and appreciate your support over the journey. And uh, good luck to you and your investment hypothesis and all of your uh, viewers. Cheers. Thanks very much. Cheers, mate.
Well, I think the only thing more popular than Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies nowadays is conversations about net zero emissions and Glasgow. Um, and to talk about uh, a new product on the Australian um, stock market that is linked to cryptocurrency, we have Dan Annam from Cosmos Asset Management. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Peter. So why don't you tell us about what you guys are doing to give investors um, exposure to the cryptocurrency world? Yeah, absolutely. So um, by way of background, uh, Cosmos Asset Management was set up to really look at the innovation that's happening in the digital currency asset class um, and how can we really think about delivering that exposure uh, and giving access to Australian investors through the ETF wrapper. Uh, and, and the team that, that came together was really uh, uh, was assembled based on the expertise on funds management, um, digital mining, uh, and ETFs. Right? So my background um, has been in ETFs over the past you know, 15 years, uh, both in the days in the US as well as in Australia over the last five years. Um, the, the founding um, partner for Cosmos Asset Management uh, runs a global digital miners uh, business. Uh, first Australian digital miner to actually list on the, in the US uh, under the ticker Mega Morrison's infrastructure. Um, Cosmos Asset Management was one of the first um, issuers to apply for a Bitcoin ETF uh, in the market about 18 months ago. Um, that was, that's what really kicked off the conversation about how can we get this asset class in the market? Right. So instead of looking at the challenges of, or the timeline of being able to deliver a coin digital currency ETF in the market, uh, we looked at what other ways can we actually deliver this exposure to investors? Uh, and, and the natural path was, well, there are listed companies that are specifically focused on Bitcoin mining and overall the blockchain technology. Can we look at these companies to deliver as close as we can a pure exposure to the digital currency evolution and give investors the opportunity to participate in these asset classes? Mm -hmm. uh, and the answer was yes. And so we took a basket, basket of global, you know, listed companies of about 35 names. We took those names to you know, one of the known index providers in the market, S&P, uh, worked with them to define uh, an index methodology, which then delivered the digital miners index, which allowed us to list the first pure global digital miners access ETF in the market, ticker digger on Chi-X on the 28th of October. Okay, so it's D-I-G-A. What, what did it list at and what is the, uh, the price now, mate? Yeah, so Digger listed um, at a price of $5. Uh, yep. It is now trading uh, just over $6. So, um, you know, the performance, uh, as, I, as I look at it, just based on NAV, um, is delivered you know, over 20% since it's listing. Okay. What has been the, the real-life correlation between Digger and Bitcoin's um, unit price? Yeah, great question. Again, in focusing on the methodology and trying to deliver your digital currency products to market, 
Um, what we learn by, by assessing the basket and correlation to uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and some of the, the coins, the Global Digital Miners Index has a 0.75 correlation to Bitcoin yep. and, and fairly close correlation to Ethereum as well. So high correlation to Bitcoin. Yep. Uh, when we look at it from a uh, traditional asset class perspective, you know, um, and the, the conversation in the market now is Bitcoin is going to be the next store of value. Um, currently, gold is the next store is, is the store of value for many investors. Uh, but when we look at the correlation of Bitcoin to gold, you know, it's it's in the sub uh, point ten. Right? Uh, and we look at traditional asset classes, ASX 200, it sits in that same space. So we think, we think you know, the, the mine is, is a great opportunity for investors to get diversification. Yeah. Uh, Dan, just because I, I, I always try to ask the questions that the viewer would be thinking. So um, are we saying then, you know, with this wonderful world of Bitcoin price rises, Let's imagine Bitcoin goes up by $100,000 as some, you know, plenty of smart people have predicted. Yep. If the correlation is 0.75, you're saying that, you know, Digger potentially could go up 75,000. That's... Well, it would be the equivalent, 75%. Yes, precisely. And, and that's, what, that's what should happen. But in actuality, when you look at the economics of the miners hmm. and how the miners operate, what we tend to see is when Bitcoin rallies, right? The miners actually tend to deliver 2X that return of the Bitcoin price. Mm. All right. Now, obviously this is just the real world over a month, yep. but before you came to market, the job that S&P would have been doing was, well, how, how good does this correlate with the, with the, the movement in the Bitcoin price? Is that, that's a fair call, isn't it? Otherwise, otherwise, you couldn't have gone to the market and said, hey, this is, this is going to be a, a good proxy for Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. And, and I want to be clear here. Um, so Cosmos actually, so the Global Digital Miners is a custom index. Um, and Cosmos is the administrator and the IP for that index. What we did was we took it to S&P to really help us define the rules, uh, which we then used to map the index and then allow us to manage the fund, right? So yeah, you're right. I mean, what we wanted to do is, you know, we just wanted to come out of the gate and say, hey, here's an index, go with go and take it, right? Um, you know, we, we consulted the market uh, and some industry experts in ensuring that we were delivering the right product to market. Yeah, okay. Um, so um, what have you learned since the, the ETF has gone live? Because it's, it's one thing to, you know, put, put an ETF out there, but to see, actually work in the real in the real um, marketplace, what have you learned? Yeah, look, the, the key the key thing for us was was twofold. One, we wanted to ensure that the product that we were delivering, you know, um, felt true to what what you know the digital currency is meant to deliver in the market. Um, and so, to that point, you know, we were very proud with how the product is behaving and and delivering the returns as expected, right? So when we listed the product, um, which was on the 28th of October, what we see, what we saw from that, that time period was saw the Bitcoin price rally uh, almost to you know, 69,000, right? Yep. And 
in the vein of how that product is meant to perform, we also saw the performance of Digger, right, rally um, you know, 25% in the first five days. Hmm. Right. So from, from a design perspective, we were really proud to see that you know, the, the exposure kept to the true label of delivering you know, cryptocurrency exposure and, and having a high correlation to you know, Bitcoin. So that we were proud of that. Yeah. Um, you know, again, it's, it's early days, uh, but again, another proof point was we recently had a rebounce, uh, which is when the fund needs to manage um, to the index rebounds uh, to ensure that it's tracking the index. Um, and again, we were very proud how we were able to actually replicate the rebounce of the index to the fund, right? So uh, currently we have 17 names in the index. When I look at the performance of the digital miners index relative to Digger, uh, as measured by now, um, we're spot on. We're tracking the index as intended, right? So, I mean, we've got a long ways to go, but, you know, again, the key for us was ensuring that we designed a product that gave investors that exposure, but also actually being able to manage against that index. Uh, and, and we've been able to do that. Dan, you know, you're, you're not a newcomer to this industry. Um, and, and of course, we could be talking to newcomers to investing. And so it would be, it would be perfect for you and you'd be, have, a, have a much bigger smile on your face if Digger had been going, say, for three or four years and you really had, had tested it out. So all, all we can say at this point in time, after a month, it basically is performing how you hoped it would but you'd love to have seen it through a crash. You would love to have seen it through a boom and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. it's early days, but what you're really saying is that so far, so good. Yeah, so far, so good. And look, I mean, since we launched the product, right, we've seen the Bitcoin price correct from 69 now down to 57, yeah. right? And it's been, it's been a similar uh, correction in, um, in Digger, right? We saw it rally from that listing price of $5 all the way to around 7 and now it's the back down, you know, trading around like the six six dollar range, right? Um, and so again, it's it's mimicking the the exposure as intended, and it all has to do with the the exposure and the index methodology that that's been designed. So, you know, one of the there are there are four criteria for security to be included in in the global digital minus index. Um, and the first one is the security or the company has to be listed on a global national, national exchange. Uh, similar like NASDAQ or the London Stock Exchange or the Toronto Stock Exchange or the ASX or CHIX, right? So long as the security is listed on those, on those markets, they get the tick to be included in the index. The other two components, uh, which were really critical uh, in doing the product was just really think about liquidity. Uh, we looked at the ETF liquidity of the Australian market. So in general, at the top end, um, you know, some of the mature products are trading about 30 to 35 million a day. And we wanted to ensure that we could actually deliver that liquidity for the Australian market within Digger. And so we set the rules of ensuring that for a security to be included in the index, they had to have a minimum 100 million in market capitalization, USD. The second rule there is it had to have uh, at a median 1 million USD trading dollar volume. Those two components uh, allows us to be able to trade between 35 to 40 million AUD a day 
in the underlying basket, right? So we're actually able to support the volumes that the Australian ETF ecosystem uh, produces. Uh, last but not least, and this is really the, the critical part of the exposure and why, you know, again, the design to get just a pure exposure to cryptocurrency is that the business had to generate at a minimum 80% or more of their revenue from Bitcoin mining or digital currency mining or infrastructure. That is really the key in being able to give investors that want to get access to the coin, but can't, or they can by you know going to open up the wallet, which can be risky. Um, having that high revenue basically gives a high correlation to the coin, and it gives investors an indirect exposure to the businesses involved in cryptocurrency. Okay. Well, um, one last question, mate. Um, yeah, clearly, Bitcoin has been linked to the tech stocks, and of course, the tech stocks at the moment uh, suffer every time the bond yields go up. And of course, I think we're going to be st stuck with um, bond yields going up and down until there are no more lockdowns and all those <laughs> things. You know, so if they, if they ever stop. So is that a fair call then that, that one of the headwinds for Bitcoin and ultimately Digger is going to be what the attitude is towards tech stocks? Uh, look, I mean, I, I actually have a, a different different opinion on it when I, when I look at it, right? And yep. the way I look at it is if we are all, and, and I think that's the, the majority of participants in Bitcoin are sort of have the same view and, and we're starting to see the network increase. If we're all saying that Bitcoin is going to be the exchange of value currency, all right? Yep. Um, and at a moment, the market cap for that Exchange of a value for currency is, is, you know, one trillion, just just over one trillion. Yeah. So there's a there's a small number of participants in that network that actually believe that. At the second level, if we think about what we currently use as store of value, you know, um, or preservation of wealth, and we look at gold, right? The market cap for gold is eleven trillion. Right. We take it a step further and we think about, you know, corporate balance sheet uh, and defensive assets, fixed interest, uh, and the market cap for the um, globally is 119 trillion. Yeah. If, if we start to see corporations that have been stalled for yield on their cash balance sheet, okay, slowly, and we've seen some institutions actually adopt it, slowly start to think about. Bitcoin as whether an inflation hedge or a better exposure to treasury balance sheet, I think there's, there's a great opportunity for the Bitcoin asset class and the Bitcoin price down the road. So just, let's just hypothetically, let's say of the, you know, whether the 11 trillion in assets in gold or maybe the 119 trillion in fixed interest, uh, of corporation, of which you know some corporations hold cash as part of that their balance sheet. Let's say five percent of that of those assets decided to shift to Bitcoin. What happens to the price of Bitcoin? Mm. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So we, I think this, this is, a, uh, you know, I, I think technology companies that are in digital, they're they're in the digital world, are embracing Bitcoin. As, as you know, part of balance sheet, you know, some of them are. And, and that's why maybe we see some sort of high correlation uh, to the Bitcoin price. 
but really we are in the beginning stages of the global economy and global corporations really thinking about this asset as a store of value. And the more participants that we see in that asset class, I think the great opportunity that there is, there is for investors, uh, and today investors can actually participate in that with the Global Digital Miners Access ETF digger. Okay, great, great to talk to you. Good luck with it. And um, um, I think some people will be interested. Uh, and it's certainly, we, we have to say it is risky at this stage, but it's a very interesting product you've created and good luck with it. Thank you very much. Well, big news today, EML got some good news out of Ireland. Uh, Ron Shamgar of Tamman Asset Management was pretty happy, judging from his tweet. Uh, Ron, what, what's your take on what you read today and uh, the, the position of the company going forward? Yeah, sure. Hi, Peter. Well, look, um, finally got some good news on EML today. So um, obviously, since May, when the Central Bank of Ireland, uh, which basically regulates the e-money license for a subsidiary of EML, of EML called Prepaid Financial Services, which essentially um, runs all the programs uh, in Europe outside of the UK. Uh, they obviously had some issues back in May, uh, which limited uh, how much new programs and customers EML can run through, uh, which obviously puts a bit of a a ceiling on their growth and, and added significant amount of cost base to their regulatory um, uh, division in terms of, um, you know, uh, addressing some of those concerns by the CBI. Now, the good news uh, today is that the Central Bank of Ireland has told EML that they can actually uh, willing to approve new programs. Now, this is really important because EML has had 36 new programs that have been on hold with the Irish regulator. And, and couldn't launch in the last two, three months. And um, obviously, the longer it delays, uh, you know, obviously, um, you lose some of that revenue and implementation revenue this year, but also there's a chance that some of these customers will eventually go to another provider. Mm -hmm. So the good news today, all these programs can be put through. Uh, in addition, um, the regulator, uh, although um, they have put a limit on the amount of money that uh, the PFS subsidiary of EML can put through this regulator at the moment. Uh, they're willing to let uh, sort of uh, what, what EML is doing, they're basically taking out very high volume, um, low margin business and replacing it with new programs that are much higher margin to EML. Uh, so that will basically, the, the, the Central Bank of Ireland has allowed them to do this. So basically replacing uh, you know, business that's basically making you no money um, and you're putting in new business that's making you a lot of money. Mm. Uh, and that's really the key here. And I think this is what the market likes. Also, there was a comment there. So obviously, uh, EML is going through a remediation process with the Central Bank of Ireland. So essentially addressing all the issues that the Central Bank of Ireland had in terms of how they, you know, process, uh, they look at anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism and all kinds of things. Uh, and uh, they're basically saying, well, you know, we're going to let a third party review how you do things over the next 12 months. And we may decide earlier than 12 months to remove any restrictions on your license. Mm -hmm. So that's further good news. So well, what I think happens now is that the larger institutional investors in the stock have shied away from the 
from buying this company because of this uncertainty. Now that that uncertainty has really kind of been removed um, and EML can start growing again, um, I think they're all coming back buying the stock. And there's probably a lot of, um, you know, short covering today in the stock. I think it was the top 20th stock that's uh, on the short list uh, on the ASX. So some short covering there. And then I think, uh, you know, their EBITDA guidance for this year, which was 58 to $65 million, which they reaffirmed at the AGM. I think now most likely it comes in at the top end. So I think we'll see some broker upgrades. Uh, and then, you know, in the background, which I think no one's really talking about, but EML actually has um, other licenses in other jurisdictions in Europe. They cannot currently run these prepaid programs on these licenses, like in Central Bank of Ireland, but they can apply for uh, sort of an upgraded license in Spain or in France. Uh, and basically what they can do is, you know, it might take four months, five months, and then they can essentially switch over most of the large programs from uh, the CBI in Ireland to a new jurisdiction, plus putting all the new uh, business that they get in the future. And basically the Central Bank of Ireland issue becomes a non-issue. Mm. Uh, and so I think that uh, that's what the market maybe doesn't really understand. Um, and it's something that I'm sure the management team is doing it quietly behind the scenes. Yeah. Do you expect that? See, I, for those people who don't know the full story, in, in a sense, it was the acquisition had had um, made the mistakes that got the, got the company offside with the Bank of Ireland. It wasn't EML so much. It was the, the fact that they picked up a company that had been uh, doing practices that were uh, not given the tick by the central bank. Is, is that yeah. correct? No. So th this is another thing that I think investors don't really understand. So what happened was uh, PFS, which was acquired by EML uh, last year, um, uh, was regulated in the UK. Now, there's never been any issue in the UK, and there hasn't been any issue in the UK since. Now, what happened at the time of the acquisition, Brexit was also happening. And so any program that was outside of the UK had to run on an e-money license outside of the UK. And now Ireland at the time was promoting itself as like a nirvana for fintechs. Come to us, you know, bring employment, we'll happily regulate you. So EML thought, well, Ireland is a really uh, credible country in Europe, we'll apply for a license there. And what happened, they transitioned all these programs, which were growing really fast through 2020, and then comes early 2021, and the Central Bank of Ireland suddenly sees, you know, billions of euro of money coming through this license from this entity they never heard of called PFS. So they decide to review it. And essentially, they haven't found a single bridge, not a single bridge has been found. And essentially, what it is, is the Central Bank of Ireland does not want to regulate a high growth fintech. They don't want to take the risk. And that's really what it comes down to. But they still yet to find a single bridge. So, so, and that's part of the reason why you think that EML will look for an, another domain to, to run this business out of. A hundred percent. They, in fact, a large part of the PFS European business is in Spain. Uh, and now obviously in France, they, they bought the open banking business Centennial. Uh, so I think a hundred percent within six months, uh, the Central Bank of Ireland will be a, a non-event. Non
All right. Now, Ron, I know when I first started, you know, when I first invested in the email and started talking about, I always saw it as being a, a reopening type play, but we know it, it's diversified over the period since the coronavirus uh, you know, hit the, the stock market. But I still presume them, there still must be some reopening upside for a company like AML. Is that, is that a fair call? Yeah, so, you know, historically, it used to be a, basically a shopping mall gift card business. In fact, yeah. they're the biggest uh, gift card shopping mall business in the world. Uh, obviously, that is now becoming a smaller and smaller part of the business, but it's still a very profitable part of the business. So essentially, um, in that sort of December quarter, the Christmas quarter, where that's where the majority of uh, these cards are bought, it still makes up about $20 million of gross profit for email every year. Uh, so it's qu still quite material. And obviously with things with, you know, with countries uh, reopening around the world, mostly more importantly, they're mostly in Europe and North America and they've reopened. So as long as we don't see renewed lockdowns over there going into Christmas, and obviously we've seen something in Austria, but you know, the main sort of countries, then yes, they will benefit from this reopening thematic. Uh, but I think that, you know, as their business grows, the shopping mall gift card business is going to go smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. they might even sell it in future, I think, and focus on that prepaid reloadable business. And obviously the, the new open banking business that they bought, which is actually a massive opportunity. Okay. All right, let's move away from EML. Have there any, any, any recent acquisitions to your fund that you uh, think have, um, has upside? Uh, always. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I wouldn't have asked that question. I figured unless you had an answer. <laughs> yeah, look, there, there, there's been there's been quite quite a few stocks uh, that we like. Um, uh, I mean, I guess uh, you know, there's obviously sort of uh, reopening thematic uh, stocks that we like. You know, there's there's one, for example, which is um, Apollo uh, Tourism Holdings, which is essentially a, a camper van, um, you know, a retailer and rental business in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and Europe. I think that's a great play on this reopening thematic. Uh, not only, you know, obviously people being able to go out and travel and rent camper vans, but also people maybe more staying within sort of Australia and holidaying locally or mm -hmm. domestically and, and, you know, sort of uh, renting those camper vans. Pre-COVID, about three years ago, this company was making $70 million of EBITDA uh, and their current market cap is about a hundred million dollars. Um, so it's an interesting one uh, if you you know if you believe in that thematic. Yeah. All right, mate. Great. Thanks for giving giving us your views on EML, and uh, let's just hope the uh, future remains positive for the company. Thanks, Peter. For our checkup of what's going on in the real estate market, we have the founder of Century 21, Charles Tarby. Charles, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Peter. Now, months ago, you predicted that once the lockdowns were over, supply would increase and that would start slowing down price rises. And, and, and it looks like the, the newspapers and the economists are catching up with you. Is that actually the case? Yeah, very much the case. We've been watching the stock levels rise. Uh, as, as we felt they would, and they have risen now, I think it's nine or 10 weeks in a row. And uh, like week on week, it's been, you know, two plus, three plus percent. Last week it was 2.4, 2.36% or something. 
over the week before. But the interesting stat is the one that shows you what it is like over this time last year, and that's been climbing, and we're now 4.98% higher than this time last year. So you've got all this stock level, and a lot of the buyer frenzy occurred pre-COVID and in many cases during COVID. So I think we're now reaching that balancing stage where there is an opportunity for buyers and sellers to negotiate more appropriately. Not the case in every area, like some areas like Brisbane uh, is still catching up because it was way behind in terms of pricing. So it's still catching up, so still some energy there. Uh, there's still energy in the outlying areas as, as the, you know, the runoff occurs. But in reality, absolutely, um, auction clearance rates have dropped every single week for the last nine or 10 weeks. Uh, and, and they're down now close to what they were this time last year, 71 over 69% roughly. Mm-hmm. And so once again, we're finding ourselves back in that, that marketplace that I particularly like. You know, we, you've heard me say before, we only ever have two types of markets and that's where we, we, we believe you, you've got to get the buyer up to meet what they think is a vendor's ridiculously high price and we call that a boom. And the other is where you get the vendor down to what they think is the purchaser's ridiculously low offer, and we call that real estate. And you know, and and 90% of the time, Peter, that's what we're in. And I think that's where we're heading again. Okay. So, and we've seen the the, the various banks have come out with conflicting forecasts. I think they're they're, they're basically saying the same thing. Correct me if I'm wrong. That that prices slow next year and fall in 2023, but the magnitude of their falls very different. Very, very different. And, and if you'll recall, going back to um, this time last year, or actually even earlier last year, uh, where, where one of the major banks predicted a 32% price crash because of COVID. And I, and I know people that didn't buy because of that. They're going to wait. And they were very, very poorly disappointed because it wasn't that long, only five months after that, that uh, the same bank predicted the property prices were going to increase uh, significantly. So how, how do you gauge it? I mean, we always see it because we're at, we're at the coalface. You know, it's not like our data is historical. Our data is real. Mm-hmm. And I can log in this morning and I can see the percentage of increase in sales across Australia and New Zealand for my company, uh, percentage of listing numbers, et cetera, et cetera. And I can see conversion ratios in real time. And so they continually tell me that the days on market are starting to extend out in certain areas. So certainly the listing numbers, we've had a record number of listing growth in, in both C21 and Better Homes and Gardens real estate in the last month. So that, that indicates it to me. But simply put, you walk past a real estate agent's window, if you see lots of properties for sale, you can go in and negotiate. If you start seeing sold stickers, then it's time to get in there and make an offer. And that's, that is as, that is as um, real as it is. Uh, we can go through all the stats you like that, that come up now from history, but you, you talk to a real estate agent said open for inspections, and they'll just tell you what it's like. And I think that's what we've got to listen to. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you, in principle, agree that prices probably rise this year at a slower rate? And then once interest rates start to rise, we will start seeing prices starting to slip from high levels a little bit. I look high levels for sure because that's you know there's 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 been a lot of upside in that area, mm-hmm. uh, so definitely high levels. I think it's going to be more of a balance than than a, than a drop. But the only thing I think that will impact on it, Peter, is if interest rates do move more than it is expected, and that's quite possible. Uh, and if that's the case, then we are definitely going to see people under stress. That could cause a price drop. Other than that, I think if people can keep their homes and they don't have to sell their homes, they won't. 
So I don't think you'll see that flood to the market of desperate people unless the situation with uh, RBA uh, changes, or even with the banks. I mean, we all know the banks have been quietly pulling up interest rates behind the scene anyway. Hmm. Do you sometimes see Smarties making a rush for the exit door doors before interest rates go up on the basis they think, well, price is still high uh, and, and the market's not spooked yet, but I don't want to be a seller when the market's spooked? No. Uh, look, uh, you do see, you do see uh, people who play the game with the marketplace. It's, it's very hard to do in real estate because you, you'll have noticed that in the last six months, you could have bought a home and then sold it for more. And uh, six months later, and, and people can't pick it. It's, it's incredibly hard. Uh, so I don't know too many people that would be in a position to do that. But I, a lot of people I speak to, they say the same thing to me. Oh, gee, the real estate market's gone bloody crazy. It's stupid. And I said, do you own a property? They go, yeah. I said, what are you complaining about? Hmm. You know, I, I, I just think that it comes and goes, Pete. And, and uh, as you know, you can see it a lot easier when you're standing at an open inspection every Saturday or you're at an auction or you're negotiating with a buyer or seller. And I can tell you, we're coming back into a real estate market, whether we like it or not. And I do think that that's happening with or without interest rate changes because the stock levels are climbing and the buyer interest is slowing and the ability for a buyer to uh, be approved for a home loan is decreasing every day as well. Okay. Let's just move to commercial. I know you own a couple of commercial uh, properties and I'm kind of thinking to myself, yeah, and I was talking to a commercial property buyer's agent last week, and she was saying that, that there are a number of suburbs where those commercial shops are becoming much more valuable because more people working from home, more people in those shopping strips. Are you seeing the values of those sorts of commercial properties in those shopping strips where people are congregating? And I know where I live. I, I hate trying to buy a coffee near my place in the morning because no one's working in the in the CBD like they used to. Go into the CBD where my office is, I can get a coffee in one minute flat. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that has definitely impacted on certain areas wherever you go now. And so the commercial shop fronts have had a really terrible, terrible time. Uh, they're getting a little bit of an opportunity now. But, Peter, I also think that the movement back from working from home is also going to change. Uh, I think a lot of people love working from home, but they, some of them are getting really sick of working from home too much. And I think that we've changed our policy in my business. You know, you can come in three days and work from home too. It's always subject to how much work you get done. So uh, from, from us not having anybody in the office, to so us taking it to three days and four days a week is starting to occur. So I think you'll see there will be movement back into the city and the, and the suburbs will flatten out a bit. But right now, honestly, everywhere you go, you're bumping into people. You're absolutely right. I do think that will settle down. Okay. Charles, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. And that's Charles Tarby of Century 21. If you want to know more about us, go to switzerreport.com.au and that's where you can see some more in-depth analysis of different stocks that our experts are interested in, either to buy them or to sell them. That's switzerreport.com.au. I'm Peter Switzer. Thanks for joining me. See you on Monday.